I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Paul's letter to the Philippians. This morning, we're going to be looking at the last paragraph of the first chapter. This uh, might be a familiar text. Some of you, this passage happens to be our scripture memory passage for our community groups. It also happens to be one of the key turning points in the whole letter to the Philippians. Now, what do I, what do I mean by that, that this is a key turning point in the letter? In what way does this make a big transition in this letter? I want to help us understand that right at the beginning. I'll just point out a couple things. Yeah, so if you would take a look back at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to see how Paul writes there. He says, I want you to know, brothers, this is Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So over the last two sermons, we have talked about verses 12 to 26, which is the update section of the letter. Or to use the language of the text, that's where Paul talks about the things that have happened to me. In other words, the focus of verses 12 to 26 is on Paul in the city of Rome, on how things are going with him there, on what God is doing through him while he's under house arrest, on how he's processing the things that have happened to him, and especially how he's processing his upcoming trial, how he's thinking through the reality that he is about to find out very soon whether he will live or whether he will die. But once you get to verse 27, to our text for today, you'll notice Paul is no longer talking about the things happening to him. Instead, he begins to talk about what he wants to hear about his friends. Or, to put it this way, these are the things that he wants to happen with them in the city of Philippi. So if you look at the middle of verse 27, you'll see what I mean. So verse 27 in the middle, he says, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I want to hear certain things about you. Okay? And that becomes the focus in the letter from that verse all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. Okay? In this section of the letter, more than anywhere else, we learn from Paul what he wants to hear about the Philippians. And that's why from this verse on, we begin to hear a lot of commands, a lot of instructions, a lot of exhortations from Paul. In fact, if you went back and read the first 26 verses of the letter, you would not find a single command in the first 26 verses of the letter. <clears throat> and not just that, apart from a, a list of short commands at the end of the letter, yeah. almost every charge from Paul is in this one section beginning in our verse today from, from verse 27 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 18. That's why I say this is a turning point uh, in the letter. But there's a second thing that points this out, or that highlights this, that this is a turning point, or that this is really important, what he's about to say, and that's the first word in verse uh, 27, or the first words, depending on your translation. So in the ESV, verse 27 begins with only. It's like he's saying, only 
do this. Or uh, in other translations, we'll see different things that I'll mention in a minute. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is only going to say one thing to them. Instead, this is a way to emphasize that the very next thing he says is going to be key to this letter. And as it turns out, verse 27 is the key command of this entire section of the letter. That's why other translations try to draw your attention to it more than just by saying only. So, for example, in the CSB, verse 27 starts out this way. It says, just one thing. Live like such and such. Okay? In the NIV, it reads this way. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves like this. Or as is usual, the NLT, if you like that translation. I listen to this a lot. It tries to make things even clearer. It starts with, above all or above everything else, you must live like this. Okay? So what I've been trying to do so far is just get us to see that once you get to this verse, you've reached a turning point in this letter. Perhaps you could think of it this way. Up to this point in the letter, there's been encouragement and updates. But verse 27 begins the main exhortation section of the letter, and that continues for quite a while. This part of the letter is not focused on Paul and his life in Rome, like the first section of the book was. This is now focused on how Paul wants his friends in Philippi to live. And of everything else he says, the first line of the text is the most important of all. Okay, now with those things in mind, I want to I read through the text. So verses 27 to 30. Maybe you have committed this to memory, or maybe you are like me and most of the people in my community group, and you struggle with the scripture memory uh, passages. But here we are, verse 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Christ, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this passage, but I just want to start with two uh, big picture observations about the text, and then we'll just look at, a, at the first part of the text this morning. So, so first thing, if you step back and you think about those, those verses, the Philippians were clearly facing significant opposition from outside the church. And up until this point in the letter, I don't think we would have known that. Okay, like I, I don't think we would have maybe expected that. There was certainly nothing prior to this that signified that. I mean, we knew this about Paul, right? I mean, Paul has been facing a lot of opposition for years. He's been facing a lot of opposition in Rome. He's a, he's a prisoner, after all. He's been in prison for many years by this point. And maybe we remember from the other sermons or from Acts chapter 16 how things went for Paul when he was in Philippi. It did not go well for him. He ended up, along with Silas, being beaten 
and imprisoned. We, we knew all of that about Paul. But it's not until this part of the letter that we begin to realize that it, it has not been easy for the Philippian Christians either. They too have been suffering in very similar ways to Paul. So the entire text today has their opponents in view, and it has their suffering in view. Now, it's not entirely clear who the opponents were or what exactly they were doing, but you can tell Paul compares their suffering to what he went through, I think when he was there, and what he's still going through as a prisoner over in Rome. So it seems to me very likely that the opposition is from people in Philippi who have power, especially Roman leaders who are not happy to have Christians going around proclaiming there is another Lord other than Caesar. After all, the city of Philippi took great pride in being a Roman colony, a, a little Rome away from Rome, where citizenship was prized, where being a Roman was prized. And to have Christians going around proclaiming that there is another Lord than Caesar. There is a, another gospel than the message you've heard about Caesar. This was not a popular thing, and probably the opposition came from there, just like it did against Paul. But in any case, the big picture observation is when the Philippians got the letter, they had been facing intense opposition from outside the church for quite a while. The second, like just big picture thing that you can see, is that Paul is deeply concerned in this passage for unity inside the church. I mean, you see that especially in verse 27 where he says he, he wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay? And I'll just point out that is a huge part of the rest of the letter. That is far from the last time that you're going to hear Paul talking like that. That will be a major theme in the very next chapter. But also what you come to find out later, and Paul waits until the end of the letter to actually tell us this, but what you find out at the end of the letter is that there was at least, at least one significant conflict inside the church when he wrote the letter. And it was between two sisters in Christ that Paul knew well and loved very much. Two sisters who he says had once labored side by side with him in the gospel. And so this passage here is the first time that we get a sense of just how important this focus on unity is going to be in the rest of the letter. Now, those are some big picture things. And, and like I said, with the baptism, testimony times later this morning, the sermon's going to be a little shorter than normal today. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is just focus primarily on the first verse and a half of the passage. And then step back and think about it in light of the baptism and think about some things for our church. So, so let's begin with the first line. Verse 27 again. Most important command in the section. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. More than anything else, that's what Paul wants to see in his friends. That they are living lives 
that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Like that would be a good thing to want for your kids. <laughs> what do you want to see for your kids? What do you want them to do <laughs> in life? If they do that, it doesn't really matter what else they do. If they, if they live lives worthy of the gospel. This is what he wants to see in his friends. Now, this language of living worthy is important in many places in Paul. That's why we read the text in 1 Thessalonians. Did you, did you hear this in the text? And then I prayed, uh, I prayed for this, for us. Okay, do you remember how in the text in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that like a father with his kids, he kept on exhorting and encouraging and charging them to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. Or maybe, maybe some of you would think over to the letter to the Ephesians. The turning point of that letter, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, this is what Paul says, I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Or maybe you think over to Colossians and what Paul prays for the church. He says, I, I pray for you constantly that God would fill you up with the knowledge of his will, with all the wisdom and insight that you need so that you will be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. I just point those out to show that this is a repeated idea in Paul at huge points in the letters that he wrote. And so it should not be surprising to hear this in a letter to his friends. Above everything else, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, I'm going to come back to some of this idea later too, but I want to say up front that Paul's challenge here is not to try to become worthy of getting the gospel, okay? as if somehow we can work ourselves into a position where we are now worthy of the love of Christ or of what Christ has done for us, or as if we could get worthy of hearing the gospel in the first place. Now, the gospel came to all of us when we were unworthy. Christ came for all of us when we were unworthy. And even now, even now, we, we have not earned our acceptance with Christ. We never will. And we don't need to. In fact, it is Christ alone who makes us clean and acceptable to God. And he does that specifically for those who recognize their unworthiness. Christ would say that he did not come here to call the righteous or to heal the healthy. Christ came to call sinners, to save the sick. He came for people who knew they were not worthy. But then I want to try to think about what Paul is saying here then. Okay, I want to be very clear. Who exactly is Paul saying this to? The call to walk worthy is for those who have already heard and believed the gospel. It is a call to those 
who've already been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. It's a call to those who have seen Christ as the one true treasure of life. Or to put this another way, this call to live worthy of the gospel is not a call to the lost. This is a call to the found, to the redeemed. But what exactly does it mean? What does it look like to live worthy of the gospel? In some ways, I think we'll just have to keep reading the text because Paul's going to develop what he has in mind. But for starters today, I think we could say things like this. This is a call to live in a way that reflects the worth of the gospel or to live in a way that demonstrates the value of Jesus or to live in a way that fits with who we are now in Christ, to live in character in a way that demonstrates the value of the gospel and of Christ. It's a call to Christ people to represent Christ well in this age. This is a high and holy call. And like with the other places where Paul says things like this, this is a call to the whole church to do this together. That is why, for example, all the verbs are plural in the text. And I'm pretty sure that every time Paul talks about walking worthy, it's actually about doing this together as Christ's people. Now, certainly, we need to, as individuals, live worthy of the gospel. But the call here, and I think in all of the texts, actually, where Paul talks this way, is to us together to represent Christ well. Now, what would that look like for Christ's people to do this together? Paul highlights three things in the text in the next few lines. Look, look again at verse 27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, because he's not sure if he's going to get out or not, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Did you catch the three things? This is what he wants to hear about his friends. Because he, as, as you read through the letter, you'll find out he's about to send Timothy to them to, to encourage them and see how they're doing. And he doesn't know if, Timoth, if he's going to be able to come soon because he doesn't know exactly if he's going to get out. He says, so this is what I want to hear about you. Especially like if Timothy comes back, this is what I want to hear. That you're standing firm, striving side by side, and not afraid of anything that your opponents can do to you. Now, all three of those descriptions, all three of that, that kind of language has to do with war. Standing firm, fighting side by side, not afraid. And all three have to do with opposition. <clears throat> and I think this reminds us, when will you really know if Christ's people are truly loyal to their king? You'll know it when they begin to face serious hostility and opposition.
that will be the testing time. What happens when that happens? And, and here's what I, where I think it might be helpful to consider two possibilities of what can happen in, 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 a, in a church. Let's just think of it in a church. The one, okay, when there's serious opposition, the one thing that can happen okay, is you have a church that gets frightened by those outside the church and ends up being at war with those inside the church. That is very possible. That even churches that seem to be doing okay, going well, when there's serious opposition, especially from outside the church, one thing that can happen is that the church gets afraid of those outside and becomes at war with those inside. Sadly, those two things often go hand in hand. Fear of those on the outside, war with those on the inside. And sadly, some of us may have church experiences in our past where we saw that or where we even participated or contributed to that. That does not reflect the worth of Christ or the power of the gospel when that happens. That does not fit with who we are now in Christ. But that's not the only possibility of what can happen, right? When there's serious opposition from the outside, certainly not what Paul wanted for his friends. Instead of that, what did he want? He said, I want to hear that you are not frightened in anything by your opponents who are outside the church. Instead, I want to hear that you are standing firm together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, fighting for the advance of the gospel anyway. That's how to represent our king well in this age. If, if a church does that, that shows the power of the gospel because that would be supernatural for that to happen. To not be afraid, but instead to be shoulder to shoulder, fighting, moving forward, facing opposition together, not running away. To be under attack and not turn on each other. To face hostility and to stand firm in our one Holy Spirit. It's to be opposed from the outside but to stick together inside. To keep marching on side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with brothers and sisters who love the same king you love. Brothers and sisters who'd be willing to go with you to the bitter end with the hope of resurrection in their hearts. That's what it would look like to represent our king well together. That would show the worth of Christ and the power of the gospel. Now, over the, over the next few weeks, we're going to fill in the picture more and more with like details that Paul gives us of what it looks like to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. But I just wanted to try to like get like a big picture in our mind and to get us going in the right direction. 
As we, as we bring things to a close, I wanna offer two final reflections on our text. Okay, first, given that we're about to have a baptism and are about to have two new members added to the church, I wanna reflect a little bit on how this text relates to those things. Okay, so, so in regard to baptism, I'm reminded first that baptism is most of all about identifying with Christ as our Lord. But we should never forget that the Lord we identify with was opposed at every turn. In fact, he was rejected and crucified. And this text reminds us that opposition is the norm for those who identify with Christ. In baptism, we pledge our allegiance to Christ, no matter the cost. And yet, we're also reminded in a special way of our union with Christ. Christ is with us now and forever. He will never leave us or forsake us. And then in regard to both baptism and joining the church, I'm reminded through our text today that we need each other. We need a band of brothers and sisters who love us, and most of all, who, who love the same Lord that we love. The picture in our text of walking worthy is not of one brave man or woman going out to war. That's not the picture you get in the New Testament of walking worthy. Now, of course, if, if none went with you, you should go. But that is not how the New Testament pictures this. That is not what Christ died to win and achieve. The picture in our text today is of a church standing firm together in the Spirit's power, pressing on side by side, shoulder to shoulder for the gospel. A church not in retreat, not shrinking back in fear in the face of opposition. Christ did not save us to leave us on our own. He saves us to unite us to himself and to his body. So we will never need to go out and fight alone. And then, and then lastly, I want to do a little more reflecting on the call to live worthy of the gospel. And I want to say this as clearly as I can. When we were lost, we were not called to get ourselves worthy of the gospel. In fact, even now, we will never deserve the grace and love of our Lord. That is not what this call is about. Instead, as the redeemed, we are called to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, to live in a way that shows the worth of Christ. And we have to remember and keep those things clear. Christ came to us and for us because we were, not because we were worthy, but because we were unworthy. We were not what we needed to be, and that is why Christ came. He would not have come otherwise. And not just that, God did not wait to give us the good news of the gospel until we picked ourselves up, cleaned ourselves off, and became worthy of it. The gospel was shared with us while we were still unworthy. And we have to be very careful that we never keep the gospel from someone because we think they're not worthy of it. Okay. The good news of Christ's death and resurrection is not for those who have it all together. It is specifically for those who don't. The good news of Christ is not for those who think they're good to go. The good news of the gospel is specifically for those who know they're not 
who've come to the point where they realize they need someone else, someone much better and much stronger than them to save them from their sins. But there is a call in this text to those who've embraced the gospel to walk worthy of it. Now, as Paul will make very clear throughout this letter, the strength to walk worthy is not sourced in us, but in the Spirit of God and in our union with Christ. But the call does come to us to live this way, and we need to feel the weight of the call. But remember, the call is not to walk worthy on your own. The call is to live this way together. To live worthy of the gospel is to live together as one in gospel community. To stand together in the Spirit's power against opposition without fear, knowing that on both sides of you, you've got people who love you and love the same king you love who will not forsake you in the fight. It is to fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, for the faith of the gospel. Wherever we see that in our church, and I see it in many different ways, whenever you see it, let it lead you to praise and thank God. Because that's from him. And whenever we see a lack of this in our church, which I'm sure we will, let it lead us to repent, to pray for more grace, and let it lead us not to run from our brothers and sisters, but to lean in more and more to those who love the same king we do. Let's pray. Father, would you make our church this kind of church that embraces the gospel, that leans solely on Christ to save us, and then that walks worthy of the gospel. Help us together to stand firm no matter what opposition may come and help us to press forward side by side, shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the gospel. Lord, we, we, we ask you this because we know we do not have the strength in us to do this. And so we lean on you and we ask for your Holy Spirit to give us the strength to run. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.